Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Meredith. This episode features expert insight from a webinar titled Hepatitis Delta and Focus, expert answers to questions on HDV screening, diagnosis, and treatment. Featuring Dr. Tatiana Kushner, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, and Dr. Stefan Zoysim, Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Department of Medicine at the J.W. Goeth University Hospital in Frankfurt, Germany. For the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what our expert faculty have to say about this topic. The AASLD guidance for hepatitis B management recommends risk-based screening for HDV, which means that patients who have hepatitis B who are at increased risk for Delta, such as those who are from areas of the world which have high prevalence of Delta infection, those are the individuals that the AASLD recommends testing. However, overall, the expert consensus really is that universal screening should be done in all patients with hepatitis B because risk-based screening is really not effective in identifying all patients who may uh, actually be at risk for HDV. And we've also learned that in order to optimize testing, to increase the testing and diagnosis and linkage to care for Delta, reflex testing is a strategy that can work and has been evaluated, particularly in Europe. So, Stefan, I'll turn it over to you in terms of kind of the data and the experience that's available in terms of reflex testing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, thank you, Tatiana. Just uh, like to echo that indeed the prevalence is extremely uh, variable, which is certainly due to the lack of data we have, but probably also due to very large regional differences with respect to the prevalence. We know some countries where the Delta prevalence, uh, and this uh, may affect other countries by migration in a similar way, is uh, tremendously high, while in other regions the prevalence is pretty low. So these data must become very granular, uh, not only country-specific, but sometimes really regionally uh, specific. And uh, as you already challenged the ASLD, the current ASLD guideline, which I'm pretty sure will be updated, that uh, just uh, looking into risk population is probably not enough, is well uh, documented here in this very recent population uh, testing in Barcelona. This is the retrospective analysis of HBS antigen positive samples before and after anti-Delta reflex uh, test implementation in academic hospitals and primary care centers. And here uh, in Barcelona, 60% of those who actually were viral positive, HDV RNA positive, had no HDV risk factor identified. And this is uh, repeating uh, experiences we have with HCV, with uh, HIV, it's very hard to evaluate risk factors. Sometimes patients are not uh, uh, telling us all about the risk factors, but it's very hard to pick these things up. So the only uh, um, pass forward is really to have a double reflex testing. Every HBS antigen positive patients needs anti-Delta and every anti-Delta positive patients need HDB RNA, which is 
particularly a challenge in the United States where we are still have only two laboratories to the best of my knowledge who are doing the HDV RNA testing, which is probably uh, quite a bit of a challenge. This uh, needs to be improved and we need good commercial assays. And in this Barcelona study, the reflex testing resulted finally in a five-fold increase in the number of HPV cases diagnosed with uh, Delta hepatitis. And a five-fold difference, I think, is uh, a no-brainer uh, in favor of uh, double reflex uh, testing. The question, of course, is in the S-antigen-positive patients where you did one anti-Delta testing, it was negative. When does it need to be repeated? Should it be a once-in-a-lifetime test? Would you lead to repeat it? And here it comes to me, perhaps that a risk assessment may be more helpful because there are certain patient populations where you probably have to repeat the anti-Delta testing in regular intervals. So patients who are injecting drugs, other patient populations, while in other patients, you may consider a once-in-a-lifetime test sufficient. This is something where probably a little bit more of practical experience uh, is quite helpful. Right. I, I agree. And I mean, clearly, you know, the Barcelona data showed that at least for the first time of testing that the reflex testing clearly makes a difference. So in clinical practice, what is your general approach? So uh, as far as I understand, your institution doesn't currently have reflex testing. So what is your approach to making the diagnosis? So clearly, we still have to ask our laboratory individually to do these additional uh, tests. And this is painful. In your hepatology and gastroenterology department, you probably get it well implemented. But I'm a little bit more worried in areas where HBS antigen testing is also mandatory required. So think about uh, pregnant women where the gynecologist is doing a standard HBS antigen test. When it's positive, do you really believe that the gynecologist is asking for a Delta test? I would guess 90% of gynecologists don't even know that hepatitis Delta is existent, to be uh, frank and honest. Oncologists have to look for uh, HBS antigen before starting any kind of immunotherapy and chemotherapy. This was very hard to implement in the oncology society. Many patients actually were treated, and when uh, the immunotransferases were exploding, they learned that they have missed the HPV diagnosis. And I'm sure that our oncologists uh, have not yet learned to test the Delta for HBS antigen-positive patients. So we have a lot of colleague populations which do HBS antigen testing, but uh, have to be educated then to ask also for the subsequent anti-Delta testing. Would all be solved by reflex testing, yeah? Agree, and you know, in the US, uh, some of you may be aware that just recently the CDC officially recommended the triple panel of uh, hepatitis B testing for all adults in the US. So now it's not just pregnant women, it's not those individuals at risk, such as our liver disease patients, actually, all individuals need to be screened for hepatitis B. And so that really even broadens this further because all providers, primary care, internal medicine, uh, obstetricians, as you mentioned, and others will be screening for hepatitis B. And it will be important for them to understand that patients with hepatitis B may be at risk for uh, Delta and they should be thinking about screening. 
And the CDC recommendation means with triple HPV, HCV, HIV, but not Delta, I assume. And they actually call it triple because it's the hepatitis B surface antigen, okay. the core and surface antibodies. So okay. Okay. understand the, you know, whether they're infected, whether they, they've been uh, vaccinated or whether they've been exposed Fine. to then determine whether, you know, vaccination should so. be. A standard panel of uh, hepatitis B serological diagnosis. Right. For all adults, which is kind of a, a big uh, recommendation. So we'll see how that goes in terms of uptake, actually. And so in terms of barriers to screening and diagnosis, uh, we've discussed some of them. What are what do you think are kind of major barriers? I, I think one that we've mentioned is just awareness of Delta. So uh, non-specialist providers and even gastroenterologists maybe may not be aware of the uh, need to test for Delta. So that's one. What are others that you've encountered in terms of barriers? In all the experience with dealing with patients with chronic viral hepatitis, um, you have always uh, a decent number of no returners, especially in hepatitis B, when you find out that patients have a low replicative state of uh, hepatitis B, they are sent by the hepatologists and gastroenterologists home saying that there is no antiviral therapy needed. Then perhaps some HCC screening is recommended, but uh, you know how low the rate is that regular ultrasound screening is implemented and continued in patients who are positive for HBS antigen. And these patients are not returning a second time, so you don't have a chance of looking for Delta. And in some patients with low replicative hepatitis B who have elevated immunotransferases, other comorbidities are considered, such as alcohol or NASH or these things. But uh, it's a high risk that Delta is really missed if you are not testing the very first time. Before, because referral to the specialist is sometimes just not occurring a second time. If it's not done at this moment, it's a big, big barrier. And this is something we really have to overcome. I agree. I had patients come to me who, you know, had been diagnosed with hepatitis B maybe during pregnancy a decade earlier, and they were told, oh, you're just a carrier, nothing to worry about, no need to follow up. And then here they come 10 years later, and, and maybe they've already developed fibrosis or other complications that, of course, have not been tested for Delta. So I, I definitely think that. And compounded on that, I think some of the patient populations that are affected by Delta are really actually not accessing healthcare at all. You know, they in the U.S., at least, they may not have health insurance. They may have... Uh, you know, barriers to accessing care in general, and that in itself um, makes it difficult for us to, to screen them. The other risk factor I always see that there is always quite frequently quite a bit of a disequilibrium between the extent of ALT elevation and the stage of the disease. We know it even more and much better from the hepatitis C field that uh, also a relatively mild inflammatory status can still have quite a profound progression in terms of fibrosis. So don't make your guidance of testing for Delta uh, dependent on the height and the, and the value of your ALT levels. Always have this in mind that patients can have Delta with relatively 
low uh, immunotransferases and yet still have a very high risk of progression to cirrhosis and also the, the incidence of hepatocellular carcinoma. Don't trust immunotransferases too much in terms of severity and ex putative exclusion of a concomitant viral disease. That's an excellent point. And I think that also applies to the treatment question because the AASLD criteria for treatment of Delta hepatitis also uh, requires an elevated ALT. So just as we've been debating that with hepatitis B, I think it'll be, become a debate with Delta treatment as well. Okay, so Malika had a question that said, are all RNA positive patients treated for Delta? If only those with high ALT, what is the proportion? So very relevant to our discussion. We probably have to discuss it with available compounds uh, you have in your portfolio. If you have nothing to treat, uh, there's no indication for, for therapy. So we are desperate for drugs and the treatment indication certainly is clearly individualized, in particular what patients can actually tolerate. So high ALT is an indicator that clearly treatment is uh, highly needed. But uh, as we just discussed, Tatiana, there are these patients who have relatively low ALT levels, but pretty advanced disease or even progressive disease. And they are certainly no exclusion criteria just based on your immunotransferases not to offer treatment to them. With right. those patients who have more advanced disease and we are moving to what was available to um, the majority of our colleagues uh, in the Western world, the treatment with pegylate and deferrin. There are, of course, a number of considerations you have to make, not only in the terms of safety and tolerability of uh, the interferon itself, but indeed the risk that a patient who already has advanced to cirrhosis may decompensate when you put him on a pegylated or a standard interferon. And there is nothing worse for a treating physician than if you harm your patients. And if there is no chance of a patient to become on a transplant list, I was personally in my practice always very cautious to use interferon in patients with pretty advanced uh, disease uh, with clear fibrosis and in particular cirrhosis uh, to use uh, interferon, yet it was uh, and is in many countries still the only available treatment we have. Right. In fact, just recently, I was part of a debate, which really was that question, should we offer treatment to all patients with HDV? And just as you said, there are really limitations to the treatments that we have available. If we had a great treatment that was well-tolerated, safe, and effective, of course, the Delta patients are the most rapidly progressing patients, and so we would want to offer them treatment. But the caveat is that we, and especially in the U.S., really don't have access to those types of uh, treatments yet. So we have another there... question here, whether okay. uh, we should just screen patients for uh, HDV when they have advanced liver disease. I think uh, the advanced liver disease, and I'm sure you agree, is uh, not the moment where you should start screening. It's really in every patient that you really pick up all the, the early uh, stages, because if you even don't have antiviral therapy available, there are at least some recommendation to give to the patients in terms of lifestyle. 
you can look for concomitant issues like alcohol and fatty liver. And there are motivations to make clear to patients that if they have multiple diseases affecting the liver, that they should at least focus on what is possible to affect by lifestyle uh, changes. Right, agree. And I, I think, uh, you know, one related question is, how do you stage maybe the advanced liver disease in HDV patients? And, you know, we in our practice very commonly use transient elastography. We use it every day on many of our patients. So we do use it in Delta patients. Uh, but there is some data to say that uh, perhaps in HDV, the assessment by transient elastography is not maybe as accurate as it is in other more validated uh, conditions such as uh, hepatitis C. That being said, we do do that. We do not uh, commonly use liver biopsies, uh, although, for example, some Delta patients are quite unique and they may have uh, many autoimmune features and may have uh, concern for other disease overlaps. So I have had some patients who we use uh, liver biopsy on, but rare. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you, you point on a very tricky uh, point because there are some hepatologists around who are strong believers that there may be a separate section of this disease, an overlap situation of autoimmune hepatitis and Delta. And uh, this is categorized by our colleagues in saying patients who have HDV RNA positivity and high IgG levels, that they may have this very peculiar syndrome. And I'm always a little bit cautious whether this is always related to kind of autoimmunity. It may be just the mesenchymal reaction in patients who have advanced liver cirrhosis. But there are indeed some Delta patients who have, according to their stage of their disease, and pretty inappropriate elevation of the IgG levels. And these, again, are patients I would be pretty cautious in considering an interferon-based therapy. I would keep my hands off here because uh, you could certainly uh, worsen the situation if indeed a true uh, autoimmune process would be uh, underlying to the super infection with the, with the Delta virus. Right. But this is few cases, but we have to look out for them. Right. Excellent point. We'll move on to the treatment landscape, just about what we know about, you know, the commonly, the currently available therapy peg leader interferon in terms of its efficacy. So I'm, I'm not about sure what is the approval status in the United States, but I assume that's very similar to Europe. We have an approval for standard interferon and peg leader interferon alpha to A, interestingly, only for the A type in, uh, in Western Europe for treating uh, Delta hepatitis. It's typically given for a year. There are some studies where it has been given for longer. And I would like to recall a case report published, I think, several decades ago from Jay Hufnagel from the NH, who treated a Delta patients for 13 years, standard interferon, and cured the Delta. It was a very popular case report. It's just indicating that probably if the treatment would be longer with interferon, if patients would tolerate it for longer, that you may have a higher rate of HBS antigen clearance and a real virological cure. With one or two years of therapy, you have some decent responses, which are not bad. It's 29% 
let's say a third of patients who 24 weeks after the end of therapy still have a biologic response. One out of three is not terribly bad. If you think back to the hepatitis C field, where initially with the one B infected patients, we had 6% sustained biologic response. So that's not bad. The thing is only that in hepatitis C, if the patient was still negative 12 weeks or 24 weeks after the end of therapy, he never had or occasionally only had a relapse. He was cured. Right. With Delta, you have just an immunological control. And if you follow up the patients for longer than 24 weeks post-treatment, the rates of relapse are increasing. And probably in the end, if you look a couple of years after your PEC interferon or interferon treatment, the rate is no longer 29 to 30%. It's probably 10% or less. And then you would need to repeat this therapy. So in general, my personal impression, it's expert opinion. It's not evidence-based. My feeling is that we are treating too short. But due to the side effects and the reimbursement issues, it's hard and very unfeasible to treat patients with interferon monotherapy for much longer. But I think this should have been done if no other treatment options become available. I sometimes reduced also the interferon dose where patients were tolerating interferon quite reasonably. And there I could extend therapy if reimbursement issues were, were available. And uh, therefore, the pedal interferon is not fully elaborated. And uh, if you have the chance and if patients are tolerating it, you may consider it to use it for, for longer. Occasionally, patients achieve indeed an HBS antigen loss, but we don't have very good data on that to what percentage this could happen. What's your experience with interferon? So, you know, the AASLV uh, guidance says that uh, very similarly for patients with elevated HDV RNA and elevated ALT that you should consider treatment with pegylator interferon for 48 weeks, so a year. Uh, I have to say, in my experience, I have had few patients interested in pursuing this. I think for patients who have an active life, who are working, who have children, who uh, have a lot going on, they're just not enthusiastic about treatment with uh, something that has so many potential significant side effects, and that is an injection. And, you know, there are Although we say that uh, HDV is the most rapidly progressive disease and leads to cirrhosis in HCC, there are those patients that you follow over time and actually do not progress. You know, that there, are, there is a subset of patients and, and we need to learn more about kind of the predictors of disease progression. But what I do in those patients that do not pursue treatment is I monitor them closely. I do serial transient allostography to see if their fibrosis progresses and then restart the discussion. If someone has uh, evidence that their disease is progressing, uh, they have more fibrosis over time, then those are the patients that I would really have this discussion. But I would say that uh, many patients are really hesitant uh, or once they start have side effects. And although I, I, there is one patient that I have that has been on it and, and as, actually as part of a clinical trial, 
and has been on it for long duration and uh, says that actually the side effects are not so bad. So it really is an individual discussion. And I would say if they have evidence of disease progression, fibrosis progression, then definitely uh, you should offer it to patients and then see if they tolerate it. One point I would like to add to our colleagues here in this meeting is that the experience physicians have with interferon has terribly declined because we are not treating hepatitis C with interferon-based therapies anymore. And the other thing I just like to tell everybody is that the side effect, interestingly, with interferon-based therapies in hepatitis C patients in the past was much more triggered by the concomitant ribavirin than by the interferon itself. And there are good studies in the literature showing that, for example, the um, incidence of depression introduced by interferon is much higher in hepatitis C patients than in hepatitis B patients. So indeed, if there's an indication, I would always try to convince my colleagues, try interferon. There's always a quick chance if the patient is not tolerating it to stop it again. You are not obliged to continue it for a year, but if you are not trying it, then you don't have a chance in helping your patient. So don't be terribly afraid, be critical in the indication, but a good judgment on the tolerability can always be found only individually in by trying it with the patient if he agrees to it. We've mentioned the limitations with uh, pegylator interference. So what else do we have on the horizon? So, you know, this uh, schematic shows the different therapeutic targets that are being evaluated and that already have some therapies that are being used for HDV. And just to briefly summarize, there are four kind of main uh, types of therapeutics that are being used for Delta, whether they're still in clinical trial or available. The first one is an entry inhibitor. The medication in that class is bulavertide. And basically, it blocks viral entry, both hepatitis B and Delta, into the hepatocyte. Then uh, we have the immunomodulators. So we've already mentioned pegylator interferon alpha. That's the pegylator interferon that is available that is uh, now being used for Delta. But there's also a pegylator interferon lambda, which is being studied in uh, Delta infection, both as part of combination therapy and as a monotherapy. And the potential benefit of pegylator interferon lambda is that actually it has fewer side effects, so increased uh, tolerability in patients with Delta. So we're learning more, and that is an, uh, actively being studied. Then we have the prenylation inhibitor, and the medication in that class is lonafarnib. And basically, this um, medication acts at a key step in the viral cycle, which is important for viral packaging and then subsequent export. So it inhibits a key step in the viral cycle called prenylation or farnesylation and is therefore part of the viral cycle that uh, can be targeted in terms of therapeutics for Delta. And then a little bit later in development in phase two of clinical trials are these NAPs, uh, which are basically pleiotropics. They act multiple different ways, but mainly inhibit uh, secretion of the hepatitis B surface antigen. Uh, so there are these rep compounds that are in uh, have had some promising results actually in phase two, and in combination with interferon actually. Uh, decreased uh, hepatitis B surface antigen 
uh, or uh, showed surface antigen clearance in a, a portion of patients. So hopefully more to come from those. So overall, very exciting that finally, you know, we have these new uh, mechanisms of action that are being uh, targeted for the treatment of Delta. And we have some data from actually phase three trials already for some of these medications. Uh, the first one that I mentioned is the bulivertide. So this is the entry inhibitor. And here we see actually the pooled analysis of two phase two and one phase three randomized open label trials uh, with bulivertide. And important to note that in these trials, the primary outcome that is being targeted is a combined response looking at both ALT normalization and virologic response, which in turn is defined as either undetectable HDV RNA or a decrease in at least two logs from the baseline. So the endpoint does not necessarily mean viral clearance. It means at least a two-log decline. And this is an FDA-approved trial endpoint that many of these clinical trials are targeting. And on the right, we see these uh, pooled results. And if we look all the way to the right of the graph, the combined response in the bulivertide, both in the lower dose, the 2 milligram, and the higher dose, 10 milligram, is 32 or 33%. So about one third of patients reach the combined response. Um, but then if we look at the endpoints individually, if we look at the virologic response individually, so again, at least a two log decline in HDV RNA, we see that the 10 milligram dose achieved in at 71% and the two milligram in 53%. And then if we look at just the ALT normalization, we have a range of 42 to 51% in the 2 milligram and 10 milligram arms of the bulivertide. So clearly, uh, this data shows that the bulivertide works in terms of uh, the combined response, the virologic response, and ALT normalization. We should just remind our audience Yep. that uh, the ALT normalization is a little bit of uh, a cheat because uh, we know for decades that if you give to a patient pegylate interferon, the pegylate interferon itself has a slight increase in ALT level. So whenever you have pegylate interferon in the regimen, your ALT levels are declining. They are going almost to normal, but they are not normalizing. But once you stop the interferon, the LT drops down into the normal range. This has been wonderfully described in all the peculated interferon alpha 2A um, monotherapy uh, uh, studies in hepatitis C. And this is, of course, reflected here in the study. So I would not completely dismiss the opportunity of combining peculated interferon with bulivertide because once you stop the therapy, you would see the increase in the ALT response. The antiviral therapy clearly is more pronounced. And the question um, has been discussed heavily in uh, recent uh, abstracts from real world data from France and Italy, where bulivertide has a restricted availability from the European Medical Agency. 
whether this initial antiviral benefit you have with a combination of pegylate and deferrin and bulivertide is vanishing once you continue therapy for a year, one and a half to two years. And if this would be the case, if bulivertide monotherapy would pick up with more antiviral therapy, the longer you treat, this would be the final uh, execution of uh, interferon, and then you would definitely not use to interferon. However, if the antiviral benefit would continue, we should certainly consider for patients who have the availability to tolerate interferon to have it in a kind of combination therapy. But these data from Italy and France are not coming from controlled trials. The combination monotherapy or combination therapy was at the discretion of the physician, and therefore we actually have no finite answer, but we should look out for this and ask for such controlled trials, whether interferon adds anything to it if you go for longer treatment. We have here a question that uh, is asking us whether a patient can live with HIV and hepatitis B and Delta, and I can clearly say that a lot of patients are living this, these three viruses together, sometimes in combination with hepatitis C in addition, but this is typically eliminated by antiviral therapy. Hepatitis B and HIV, of course, can be controlled by the same compounds, but uh, this is not controlling uh, the Delta. And of course, those triple infected patients are heavily at risk of uh, progression to liver cirrhosis because in this population quite frequently also uh, issues of truck-induced liver injury by uh, enteroretroviral agents or truck uh, consumption may occur. So it's certainly a population we have to take care very diligently. Okay. But you will now ask me on the very recent data of the DELIVER study. This is the Lonafenib uh, study. This is the largest phase three trial ever performed in Delta hepatitis. And the data have not been presented at meetings so far. It's just coming from press releases from Iger, the pharmaceutical company who is manufacturing the Lonafenib. So you see here three groups of treatment, uh, which is compared to placebo. You see um, the forearm study with placebo, peglate, and different alpha-2A, lonafenib plus ritonavir, lonafenib plus ritonavir, and pegylated interferon. You see the biochemical response in blue, in the biologic response in red, and then with the purple, the combined biologic response. Obviously, placebo is not going to help at all. You see quite nicely the good response of pegylated interferon on the virologic response. And you see, of course, not enough um, ALT normalizations for what we just discussed. Lonafenib plus ritonavir had 25% biochemical response, 15% virologic response, and 10% combined response. And in the combination with pegylated interferon, these data had an increase of roughly 50 to 100 percent. Of course, if you compare these data to placebo, it's statistically significant. But is it clinically meaningful? Very big discussion will occur whether these data are sufficient to convince uh, our colleagues and ourselves 
to treat uh, every Delta patient with lonafenib. The most exciting data actually comes from the liver biopsy. There is a huge number of patients who receive paired liver biopsy, almost 230 patients, and the histologic compositist endpoint was clearly highly significant. More than 50% of patients who received the combination of pegylating deferrin, lornofenib, and ritonavir had an improvement of at least uh, two points in the ISHAC score with no inversion in the infight process. And this is terribly interesting because that's probably the most patient-relevant endpoint which was assessed here. And therefore, I think lonafenib needs to be explored in further studies. And in particular, I'm looking into studies where lonafenib is uh, combined with bulivertide and perhaps not pegylated interferon. And this is, of course, the future we have to see and then to find differential treatment indications. Right. And, and I do think that, you know, the lonafarnib and ritonavir arm, yes, the response rate was not as high, but it is an all oral regimen. So there is something to say for that, that, you know, it's not an injectable all oral, although I would say that side effects also is an important consideration here because gastrointestinal side effects are a big issue, unfortunately, with the lonafarnib. Here we have one question from uh, Yusuf asking us for a 32-year-old patient with delta hepatitis, compensated cirrhosis, no formal contraindications to interferon. He had tuberculosis, which apparently seems to be cured. And uh, he asked how risky is the treatment of hepatitis with interferon. So I don't know what you think, uh, Tatiana. If I would have no bulivertide available, and this patient is already at a compensated cirrhotic status. You know, I already mentioned at the, at the, the beginning of our session that there's always a risk that with interferon, you have the risk of a flare, an ALT flare, and this can lead to a decompensation of your cirrhosis. So if you could follow this patient on a very diligent uh, regimen, very short intervals, you could monitor ALT levels, very regularly, I may risk and take an interferon attempt in the treatment of these patients, but I would definitely prefer the availability of bolivertide being it in a clinical trial or after approval and would uh, rather like to treat this patient with an entry inhibitor. Yes, I, I think I would agree. And, and we are hopeful in the U.S. that bolivertide will become available, uh, hopefully, uh, in the next year or two is what we hear. So maybe if he has, you know, the ability to wait a little bit longer, uh, then I would also wait for that. Uh, so I think we're just about out of time, but the key take-home points uh, that we covered is that establishment of HDV diagnosis is important, important to guide treatment and disease surveillance. It's different than hepatitis B mono-infection, so we really need to establish the diagnosis and care appropriately for these patients. HDV reflex testing can significantly increase screening and reduce uh, HDV burden. So hopefully we can implement reflex testing on a broader scale in Europe and, and perhaps in the U.S. as well. HDV uh, diagnosis should prompt linkage to specialist care and discussion about potential treatment options, whether it is pegylator interferon or referral to clinical trials or potentially, hopefully soon in the U.S. as well, bolivertide. 
And although pegylator interferon alpha is currently the standard of care, there are really exciting new therapies on the horizon. So hopefully more to come very soon. Great summary, Tatiana. And there's certainly a lot more to discuss, but I hope we motivated our audience to look out for future data, future discussions in this field. There's certainly more we can do for our patients and we just have to have more clinical trials to really use the available drugs in the most appropriate way for our individual patients. Thank you very much to our faculty and thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back for more episodes on important hepatitis topics. Thank you and have a great day.